You're raised as an athlete to fight back. So why all of a sudden, when you retire, do you stop the good fight? This is Finding Center with Nick Hardwick. Hey guys, it's Nick. First off, thank you for the time. As always, I'm super grateful. I'm going to give you a little bit of background on our next guest, and then I'm going to tell you why he's joining us. So on this episode, you're going to hear the voice of Dr. Eric Wan. Dr. Wan is president of Wave Neuroscience. It's a biotechnology company that has innovated a breakthrough technology called Magnetic E-Resonance Therapy, M-E-R-T. This technology utilizes computational neuroanalytics and brain imaging to customize treatment protocols with the aim of restoring optimal neurological function. Eric joined Wave Neuroscience, which was formerly Newport Brain Research Laboratory, after serving as the chief physician and chief technology officer of health services for a Fortune 50 aerospace company. He also served as a U.S. Navy flight surgeon in the Marine Corps. He completed his residency at Harvard OEM Combined Residency Program and was appointed chief resident. He received a Master's of Public Health from the Harvard School of Public Health, an MBA from the University of Southern California Marshall School of Business. Pretty impressive resume, right? So as many of you may know, I underwent a six-week treatment in San Diego at a facility called the Brain Treatment Center. Some of you even know about this after reading an article that I got to write about in as coherent and digestible a manner as I possibly could in Peter King's Football Morning in America, which is on NBC Sports website when he was on vacation this summer. I'll put a link to that all at the bottom of this podcast. Here's some things that I took away from the treatment, which first off, I I noticed I was able to complete the loop on thoughts that I had started. So you know how when sometimes you begin a thought and you're in a conversation, you're discussing a point or arguing or whatever you are, you know where you're going to begin and you know some points that you may want to make and then hopefully complete that circle on the thought in a really coherent manner. Yeah, and in my line of work, whether it's on TV or sports talk radio or on the podcast or talking to Jamie or the kids or my friends just hanging out, when you get the confidence that you're going to remember where you are in the conversation – And then you can take the liberties to take little side tangents and divert a little bit and then return to that original thought. And you can put a nice, pretty little bow on it. Those conversations, I feel like, can go into more interesting spaces. But without that confidence that you'll remember really where you're going in the first place, you can't take those interesting turnoffs or you can't ask the challenging questions at the appropriate times. And you have to say, only what you're thinking like right now, or you can't hold on to your question until the appropriate time when there's a drop off in the silence because you may forget it. And that ability and that confidence, it, it's returned to me, which I'm super pumped about. I feel like I'm getting into more in-depth conversations and it's going to really interesting places. And you're going to hear certain parts of this on the podcast as it relates to my treatment. But another thing that came into my life was really a reduction in anxiety and the feeling of being overworked or overtaxed with what a lot of people would consider like a half day of work. So after a standard day of work, like three hours at the radio station, I'd come home and I wouldn't leave again. I couldn't engage in social activities. I had the sense that I would just be overwhelmed, that I needed to stay in my cave at home and 
recharge my batteries up for the next day, I don't have that feeling anymore. And I'm just working longer. I'm able to work harder. I have more patience for the kids. And here's some other things. Task identification and completion was something that certainly improved following the treatment. So part of that inability to follow through on tasks was due to that overwhelming feeling that I was getting, the overworked feeling. And with that feeling since being removed, it freed me up to be able to really continue to press longer and harder without the stress on the other end being associated with it. But amongst other things, it was it was really a treatment that made me commit to myself and my brain health. So focusing on and improving that area, it really should be no surprise that my cognitive ability had improved and following the treatment, everything I do in my life, it's now centered around taking care of my brain. So the reason I work out so hard other than wanting to look good is to really flush that brain with fresh blood and oxygen and hopefully drag out some of the inflammation that we're going to learn about here that may be associated with some of the the brain damage or the traumatic brain injury. Exercise is also proven to allow your brain to make new neural connections. I'm reading a really exciting new book called Spark by a Harvard doctor that's talking all about this. It's showing that exercise can make you more able to learn, which can make you smarter. And really, I mean, come on, who doesn't want to get smarter? I eat as clean as I possibly can so I can maintain a good, healthy body weight. I fight the inflammation in my joints and in my brain. So by maintaining as healthy a joints as I can, my body can do more exercise, which in turn continues to make my brain more resilient. It's this really nice cycle. So needless to say, I'm really thankful for my time spent at the Brain Treatment Center in San Diego. Now stay tuned afterwards for a couple of minute wrap up for my thoughts on some of the big takeaways from the podcast. We're going to give that a try. And if you want more information on the BTC, the Brain Treatment Center, check them out at braintreatmentcenter.com. Thanks for listening. Remember this. Nobody cares about your health like you do. If you notice you're having trouble doing the things that you used to do or you notice a loved one does, you don't have to accept it as your fate. Please do something about it. Fight back. It's your life. Let's go. Joining us now on the Finding Center podcast is Dr. Eric Wan. Doc, first off, I want to thank you for the treatment that I went through. It started in April, six weeks, and ended sometime around May. I tried my best to describe that treatment. I got to write an article for Peter King's Football Morning in America. It was really rudimentary, I'm sure, but I tried to put it in plain language to people. So first off, thank you for the science and the technology behind the Brain Treatment Center. But if you will, kind of in layman's terms, describe that process. Describe the treatment that I went through and describe the treatment that other people are going through. Sure. Well, First, I'm very honored to be here. Thank you for the invitation. And, uh, yeah, truly privileged to uh, be here with you. And uh, just to describe the treatment at a high level, it's really a three-step process. And the goal and the function of the treatment is to simply optimize brain function as an organ to try to uh, reach its maximum potential. But the first step of this is to get a brain map with a technology called a quantitative EEG, and we combine that with uh, a tracing, a single lead tracing of an electrocardiogram, our two electrical organs looking at the electrical patterns that we're seeing in the neural pathways. So the EEG is for the brain, the ECG or the EKG? EKG is for the heart, that's correct. And there's a harmonic between the two that is helpful to us in uh, situations where there's um, been significant head injury and there's large areas of real estate of... Uh, neurons that aren't functioning well, the heart gives us a guidepost 
to some degree of where that area wants to be firing in terms of its cycle rate and uh, intrinsic rhythms. And so the, the step for us is to first get this brain map, then we run it through computational analytics and have our lab take a look at it, filter out artifacts, and uh, we analyze it. And ultimately, it's a personalized precision medicine approach where rather than giving a one-size-fits-all treatment, we're looking at the unique individual and designing a protocol that uh, we're hoping and expecting will be more effective and efficient for them. And so just to touch on that a little bit, we all have a unique profile. We all have a unique signature. And one of the dimensions we look at is uh, what's your clock speed or cycle rate. And so we all typically live somewhere between 8 and 13 hertz. That's our alpha range, which means we encode information roughly 8 to 13 times per second. And uh, let's say you were a 12.4 hertz brain. I might be an 8.9 hertz brain, and our friend might be 10.3. It doesn't matter. It's just where we live. Okay. There's pros and cons with any frequency you're at. The differing frequency doesn't make one person more intelligent or one person less intelligent, or does it? It would, it would give you certain aptitudes. And so we notice, for example, in elite athletes and many of the special operators in our military, they tend to tend, not always, but they tend to have higher frequency brains or fast processors. They can metabolize a lot of information quickly and move quickly in a certain direction. Creative people may have slower brains, right? And so okay. there's, there's pluses and minuses with everyone. People sometimes ask, do I have a perfect brain? And, <laughs> and the truth is, you know, there's really no perfect Right, and even the images we get, um, you know, it's very difficult to say to somebody, "Yeah, you know, you've reached perfection," because that's not really our goal. It's just to get the different areas to communicate well with each other, and and so kind of getting back to this scenario where, let's say, somebody sustains a head injury, we can see in these images usually pretty clearly that there's an area of the brain that may be cycling at a different rate, let's say two hertz in the left dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And when we see that mismatch, if your normal rate where your brain wants to be is 12 hertz, but there's this area in the front of the brain that's cycling at two hertz, because that's the executive function area of the brain, uh, that individual may feel lethargic, not wanting to get out of bed, lack motivation. And in a different scenario, let's say uh, the back area of the brain, the right occipital parietal lobe is cycling at, let's say 40 hertz. Okay. You know, because that's your visual cortex, you're scanning your environment 40 times per second. There's an information overload. And if the rest of your brain is processing 12 times per second, that may cause you to experience anxiety. And so uh, this information mismatch and uh, the geographical spatial resolution of the information tells us largely how you might be experiencing a world and what we can do to then try to address it and to help these areas function better. Are there some similarities that you're finding between the special ops guys that you're treating and the football players that you're treating? They are. And or, or are they different? Because I know when I came in, mine was I was high in theta wave production, which I guess is more of a meditative state. Correct. And from my understanding, I thought the military guys were on the other end of the spectrum, more beta wave heavy, which means that they're firing faster. But Correct, correct me if I'm wrong. No, you know, so, so the answer is yes. There's a lot of similarities that we see. And I would say the biggest commonality is the location of the injury tends to be frontal. And I, I suspect that's because even in your practices, you're making contact repeatedly um, with, you know, a defensive lineman yeah. in your case. I, I tell people, I estimated in the article that I, that I wrote, it was 25,000 head hits 
throughout a 11-year career, including three in college. But what I forgot to throw in there was all of the practice reps during season. So I counted training camp, I counted in-season, I counted off-season, but I didn't count the head hits that a lineman, offensive or defensive lineman, sustains during practice. So easily throw another 5,000 on there, add it up to about 30,000. But I would imagine the military guys ramp that up even more because isn't it concussive don't they get concussive effects from just simply firing a weapon yeah so this is an area that it's an emerging area of science and um there's some great scientists engineers doctors at uniform services university the va uh everyone is rallying to try to get answers and what we've learned is that these blast injuries 20 years ago I don't know that people knew that these had the potential to cause concussions, but the overpressurization um, and the physics of a blast injury is such that it certainly can concuss you. And we've learned that they try to adhere to minimum safe distances. There are certain safety measures that they try to take, but these repeated blast injuries, and in particular, the explosive ordnance disposal folks who are getting repeated sometimes 20, 30 times a day, they're getting these large blast, blast waves hitting, hitting them in the front. We're seeing similar patterns in that there are frontal wave deficits where you're seeing, um, you know, these these slow waves in the front where we're expecting right. uh, faster rhythms. And uh, fortunately, that is something that we can uh, we do well in trying to help along. Um, but yeah, just the training that they go through, and you talk to them about breaching doors because they have to be very close because they want to overwhelm uh, the enemy on the other side. So they breach these doors. And then they run in, and uh, it's, it's almost something that they joke about. Remember that time he got too close and blood shot out your nose? Well, you know, by definition, that's a moderate concussion. And uh, these guys, they love their work. They're very dedicated. But the repeated injuries, um, they sustain a lot of head hits, right? And yes. you know, they joke about eating charges, and uh, depending on their specific profession, uh, the artillery folks, I think, are, are sustaining quite a few injuries. Um, you know, it's a challenge. And so so the answer to your question is, yeah, frequently we will see uh, similar waveform patterns in our elite athletes, NFL players, as well as our special operators. Uh, the times when you see more of the fast wave activity is when there becomes an established uh, circadian rhythm disruption. And so you think about these guys going 18 time zones away, owning the night because they have a tactical advantage with their night vision goggles. So they're trying to get sleep during the day. Um, they're uh, pulling the trigger at night, and you know their circadian rhythm gets disrupted. Then they come back home, and they're dealing with uh, family and kids, and it's, it's hard to get back into uh, your natural rhythm. And so the way the brain compensates is um, if certain areas are firing slower, other areas start to fire faster. And so that's where you start seeing... As a compensation mechanism? Correct. Okay. And that's where you start seeing these mixed patterns. And when I say there's no perfect brain, I would say the norm almost always is that there's two or three areas that can use some help. And so uh, that's ultimately what we're trying to do. And is is, that in virtually everybody? I mean, not just combat veterans, not just combat sports or contact sports. Is that in everybody that they could use help in two to three areas of the brain? So... uh, I, I wouldn't say everybody, but I would say it's a very common finding that we have. And, and so that's, and you think about yourself as an individual, depending on the time of day, you may feel low energy, you may feel a little uh, manic at times, and that's normal, that's a human experience. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. I think the magnitude of differential 
where somebody's two standard deviations above normal or below normal. Those are the times when we start to get a little bit worried. And you have to corroborate that with what is the patient telling you? Because sometimes you may see something that looks abnormal, like, hey, I feel great. And, um, you know, is that real or are they really struggling? Because I think, you know, as well as anyone, there's, we live in a culture where you don't want to express weakness yes. per se or that I'm struggling. And that's right. That's its own conversation. But, um, you know, there are times when we'll see something and the patient will be like, no, you know, I'm sleeping fine. And we may have to have an honest conversation of this is telling us you're probably not. And so what can we do to address that? And um, we're not sort of a, uh, a group that would try to push our agenda if they want to use holistic methods. You know, whatever it takes to help the patient, um, if it's uh, optimizing their nutrition, getting them on a better exercise regimen, um, transcendental meditations becoming very widely adopted, all these things, I think, to help the individual become the best version of themselves. That's what we're striving to do. But um, when we employ uh, first-order principles of physics using our technology, we can sometimes aid that process along. And, and so that's ultimately what we're trying to do. And so this third step of once we find um, the area of abnormality in our brain map, we can use this third technology, FDA cleared for treatment-resistant depression. We're using it off-label to treat a variety of other disorders. And we're just trying to remind these areas of the brain that they want to be firing at 12 hertz or at 8 hertz, wherever that person's uh, signature is telling us. And we're delivering these gentle pulses. doesn't require any anesthesia. No, no, I, try to t I try to tell people it feels like if they've ever had e-stim on their muscles or trying to treat an acute injury, it kind of felt like that for the brain. It, yeah. it almost felt like when I had the magnet on my forehead or on the posterior side of my head that it, it was almost gently squeezing that portion of my brain, like it was causing little muscle flexes. And I don't even know if that's possible, but that's kind of how it felt like my brain. And I, I have to say it was tiring. Yeah. It was a little tiring when I go in there. It was a 30 minute treatment and it's about eight seconds out of every single minute that you get the pulses coming in, if I remember correctly. And after I left there, I just remember my brain felt like it was sucked out of energy. <laughs> well, yeah, so it's interesting. We've heard it described as a brain massage. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of different, I think, descriptors for it. Um, so what's interesting, you know, you're talking about feeling uh, fatigued afterwards. Uh, the brain, it turns out, is uh, a very thirsty organ. It's 2% of your body mass, but 20% of your caloric burn. And what we're doing with the stimulation is um, inducing evoked potentials, trying to entrain the brain and remind it, hey, you want to be firing at 12 hertz. And when we do that, um, it, it is consuming a certain amount of, of glucose. And that's why afterwards we frequently encourage patients to have a snack is to restore those kind of circulating blood levels. But that may be why you feel fatigued. The, the muscle twitching may be when we do the stimulation, you know, the first order principles of physics that these coils are, are delivering is they're able to uniquely deliver energy across a barrier. And so the magnet threw me off. The first time I heard that, I was like, come on, you know, magnets, this is all quackery. Um, but as I talked to neurosurgeons and neurologists and physicists about it, um, what is unique about, you know, this 1.5 Tesla coil is you can deliver an evoked potential across the skull, right? Because that's a pretty non-conductive barrier that's standing in front of right. you. So if you can do that with precision guidance, 
um, that's that's what's unique about this specific modality is I can uh, go to an area, geo-navigate to the right area, and deliver pulses at a pre-specified frequency. And that's the reason why a magnetic coil is used. And so, so yeah, in the beginning, I think there are barriers of skepticism that go up when your magnets kind of come on. Um, but when you peel back the layers of the onion and you realize, well, there's a reason for this, um, it's so that we can actually stimulate the cortex through the skull. That's kind of a unique property that we can invoke. So, so that's the reason why. And when it does that, uh, you do have muscles in your forehead that can twitch. And that's why a percentage of people, roughly 5% can experience a headache. Gotcha. It's not from the actual brain. It's actually from the superficial muscles in the front and the forehead that are tightening up. Exactly. Gotcha. So it's magnetic e-resonance therapy, correct? Correct. M-E-R-T. Correct. And, and describe that technology. How'd you come to it? I mean, how did, how did it all come together? Well, yeah. So it's, Mert refers to the method. Right. Okay. And these other technologies, EEG has been around for 50 years and uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation. And the EEG was essentially, I've got pictures on my Instagram where I put on a skull cap, kind of it looks like a swim cap with little portals in it. And they put the conductive gel down through there and then they hook it up to electrical, I don't know what, what that's you would, correct. Yeah. yeah. Receptors. And then they can, and that's where you draw that brain map out of. That's right. That's right. Okay. And, so that's been around in analog form um, for a long time, but it was digitized uh, around 2008. And that's what really unlocked the potential of this technology is we can now perform very sophisticated discriminant analyses, reconstruct three-dimensional maps using Esloretta. And that's what allowed this technology to evolve and develop. And so synchronizing these different technologies using uh, a brain imaging technology uh, leveraging computational analytics, uh, machine learning, and then using this treatment modality, um, that's, that's really what's unique. And uh, I don't know if we've had a chance to talk about it, but when I first heard about it, uh, I was uh, the chief physician at you know, this large aerospace company. I was playing a secondary role as a chief technology officer. And I was hearing about this, and I was just so skeptical because it sounded a little bit too good to be true. Um, but one of my veteran buddies was really struggling and, uh, I talked to his VA doctors and they felt like they'd offered everything that they could and nothing was really helping him. So I said, Hey, uh, come check out this place in Newport beach. I don't know if it'll work, but I'm hearing a lot of positive things. And, um, if you'd be willing to go and check it out and give me candid feedback, that'd be, that'd be great. And he very generously was willing to go and he had this huge transformation to the point where I questioned, the believability, because I knew it was my buddy is telling me the truth, but his change was so big. It's just not something we see in traditional medicine. And what kind of changes are we talking about in your buddy? So he went from, he was taking 20 different pills a day. He had severe chronic pain, couldn't sleep, was taking all kinds of antidepressants and anxiety medications. Um, he had dropped out of a um, his master's degree because he just couldn't read the pages on a book anymore. He'll, he'll tell you all this. It was just overwhelming. He was just overwhelmed. And like even probably when he was reading, his brain would just go too much, get tired, fall asleep. That's right. Couldn't track it. Precisely. Yeah. And, and so, you know, he was struggling for years and like a good Marine, he would follow his doctor's orders and take the medications, go to cognitive behavioral therapy. He was trying, he was just getting frustrated because he wasn't feeling right. But he was being proactive. He was being proactive. He was proactive. doing everything he possibly could. That's right. Yeah. 
That's right. And so um, we gave it a try. Uh, I was very honest with them. I said, I don't know if it'll work or not, but let's just give it a week. And and this is before you were even with the company. That's right. That's okay. right. So I was with uh, I was with this aerospace company, um, serving as their medical chief technology officer, and um, you know treating people who got injured, who uh, were building uh, their aircraft and satellites, and we were vetting this technology for ourselves because um, uh, you know I don't want to go into too much detail with that, but you know so I sent him in, and at the two week mark, his wife came into the clinic in tears saying, you gave me my husband back. This is the guy I married 10 years ago. And uh, we had a tragic accident in the squadron way back when. And so he was suffering from uh, concussions. Because you were and, prior mil- military as well. Right, okay. right. Yeah, so I was a Navy flight surgeon back in the day. I, I served with the Marine Corps unit. We are the 11th Marine Expeditionary Unit. Um, some of the best years of my life. And I still keep in touch with uh, most of those guys. And um, But there was this terrible accident. And... Uh, as a residue of that, uh, for the preceding uh, 12 to 13 years, um, we were treating post-traumatic stress, a lot of um, a lot of just military-related injuries. And uh, this was a guy that uh, multiple people in the unit had called me and said, um, hey, can you help? Is there anything that's out there uh, that's worth trying? And so we sent him in. Um, and that was, I think, an important data point for me, this external validation of the wife, the person who's closest to him, is seeing these material changes. And so even if um, my buddy, you know, even if you were skeptical that he was having all these changes, uh, the person who's closest to him, his family, telling me, yeah, this is a different guy, it caught my attention. And so I sent in a second Marine and a third Marine, and every single one was coming back saying, I'm feeling very different. Um, everything from... You know, I could read. So he went back and got his master's, master's degree. Oh, good. And uh, is going for a second master's now. So um, he's doing spectacularly well. He came off of all of his drugs, which blew my mind, you know, within six weeks. Fantastic. He, and so what I learned from... Within six weeks, you said? Within six weeks. Okay. No and so the doctors at the center had shared with me that uh, in animal models, there's about a 5x increase in dopamine, which gives them a soft landing coming off of some of these drugs. In this specific case, he was on a very high dose of opioids. And so when I first heard it, I said, you should probably go back on your medication. There's profound withdrawals you're going to experience. That's dangerous. And he said, no, I've already done it. I'm fine. And, uh, that, you know, that catches your attention. So as somebody who, you know, trained in the traditional medical system, you know, I, I was less than five years removed from finishing my residency at Harvard. And I was just, it, it, you, you become very skeptical and jaded about these things. And so, so I needed that uh, validation, hearing from people that I trusted who went through it, that these were real changes. What's the science behind that, allowing that kind of shift off of the opioids without kind of that detox withdrawals? What, what's the science there? So at a molecular level, I don't know that we necessarily have all of those answers. Um, I think philosophically, what we're trying to do is restore neural, restore neural networks and what we call uh, alpha coherence, having the brain communicate well with each other. Fundamentally, at a, clinically, what I think is really important to our patients is the restoration of sleep quality. One of the first things our patients tell us is, I had the best night of sleep last night or whenever that starts to trigger because um, there's so much downrange benefit from restorative sleep. And I can talk for hours about uh, that individual piece, but 
I think that's really part and parcel to the whole experience is people are getting better sleep. It's enabling them to endorse other good behaviors and get their lives back. And so it sounds strange. You know, we all, you know, our natural biology is such that we have to get sleep, but the quality of the sleep matters. And so if we're able to get them into more stage three, stage four sleep, where they're getting the restorative properties, they now have more emotional resilience where this guy cut me off on the freeway and I don't have to go from zero to furious yes. for no reason. I can just say, yeah, your patience case. grows. Exactly. I find that even with my kids, my patience has grown, right? Because I'm getting better sleep and I feel rested and my patience, and that's a huge benefit of the treatment as well. But you're right. When you're, when you're fed well, when you exercise, when you sleep well, your bandwidth for kind of this stressful world we live in, it really seems to increase. That's right. And I think foundationally that enables so many other good and positive behaviors. And I think our responsibility as a team is to surround the patient with other um, coaching and allied health services, whether it's grief counseling, financial counseling, um, other activities, making sure they're aware that um, the kind of nutrition you put into your body matters. Uh, we're offering at certain centers art therapy. And, but what I found with most of our patients is they start to discover their own motivation of, man, I don't have to feel like this. I'm going to go cultivate other positive friendships in my life. Um, I'm going to go uh, read some new books. I'm going to go do these other activities that I've been putting off. And, uh, you know, I don't want to overemphasize the importance of, of sleep, but I think that's foundational. And I think that happens fairly early on, usually in our course of treatment. And, and we can delve a little bit more into the science of that. I think what we're finding, particularly with uh, traumatic brain injury, concussions, um, many times sleep is one of the first things that goes. And you think about all the downrange impact of poor sleep. Um, uh, sleep, there's... The weight of the evidence now is telling us many of the comorbidities that we're experiencing in the U.S., whether it's obesity, insulin resistance, cardiovascular disease, uh, many times sleep is the fundamental issue that is leading to a lot of those downrange issues. Um, and uh, The underlying root cause would be the sleep because people are, what, turning to sugar, turning to food, overeating because they're low on ability to stay awake during the day and they're kind of continually feeding themselves? What, what is that? Correct. Well, so, yeah, I mean, causation isn't a whole argument in itself, but I think that the weight of evidence now, for example, even in cognitive decline, when we talk about disorders like uh, Alzheimer's, tauopathies, accumulation of certain proteins in the brain, so much of the science is telling us that, uh, or pointing us in the direction that sleep may be, if not causal, a critical factor in the development of, of these disorders. And so um, being able to emphasize that and hopefully correct that to some degree is allowing patients to enact for themselves positive behaviors, endorse certain things to get their lives back on track. So I don't want to describe what we're doing as a panacea, that it's all you know rainbows and unicorns, everything is great. Um, it's really a partnership where patients need to come in with the mindset of, I'm going to make the most of this opportunity. I'm going to do everything I can to, um, you know, self-correct a lot of these behaviors. 
when they come with family members, that's usually a very good sign. Yes. If there's a spouse or a child or a loved one who's there to keep them on track, um, that's usually a very good prognostic sign. Um, in the military, if there's a command that's supportive, that's very helpful. And so we're, at least for myself, we're big believers that it takes a village. And, and so, and I think that's part of our human experience is that, uh, we have to feel some sense of connectedness. And that's where I think people really end up in this downward spiral is when they're isolated and they don't have those support, um, supporting elements. And part of that, part of that is either on the front end or the back end, right. Of feeling isolated. I mean, if if your brain waves aren't firing the way they're supposed to be firing, you can, in a sense, like go into caveman mode and put yourself into a corner or lock yourself in your house and not go see anybody and not have the ability to handle social situations without the anxiety that kind of goes into it. Like when, when I think about before my treatment and afterwards, a big, a big part of coming to the center was just, I would go to work every day for three hours doing sports talk radio. And I would come home and I would just be like, Oh my God, that was a lot. Like I had to deal with a lot. And it's like three hours of work, right? It's like, I used to work 12 hour days and have the time of my life. But then going to three hours of sports talk radio was like, okay, I got to shut myself off from the world. I got to completely recharge my battery so I can go out and do another three hours tomorrow. It's like three hours of work. Like I, and I always felt like I was the kind of guy who had the ability to just continue to go and go and go. And I just started to feel myself being able to deal with less and less and less. And then I come and I started to feel like I would go to work and then I would go come home and say, Hey babe, what are we going to do tonight? What are our friends doing? Like I've started to find myself involving us once again in, in a friend network and seeking social engagements and not feeling like overwhelmed at just the slightest disturbance and this really rigid schedule that I had established. And, and I remember calling her, I was in Atlanta covering the Super Bowl. And I remember calling her and I was like, something's not right here. Like something this isn't right. My brain's not working right. I'm really volatile. Like I'm really excited about something or I'm really just depressed. And I kept finding myself in that kind of fluctuation state. And it was like when I was feeling good, boy, was I feeling really good. And like every decision I made was like, yeah, we'll do this and we'll do this and this. And then I found myself with no ability to carry through any of that because another two weeks or a week or three weeks or whatever it was later, I would just kind of drop off the map and I'd be like, Oh, I need a month. And you can never really get anything accomplished when you're feeling like that. And so I remember calling her and going, I, I'm done. I'm, I've got to do something about this. Like this, we have to change our situation otherwise. And then kind of a big part of it for me, when you talk about the panacea was simply like put my flag in the ground and going, I'm fighting right now, like right here. I'm starting and all I care about is my brain. And then everything else kind of fell into alignment after that. Wow, I get goosebumps when you when you talk about that, and it's interesting because there's so many parallels, I think, between your experience and uh, what many of our veterans are experiencing as well. Is you know you start out um, at a very high level, and on a scale of zero to hundred, let's just say the average person's a fifty, and you as an NFL uh, athlete were let's just say a ninety-two, and through a series of events, whatever it may be, you end up feeling like you're a 65 and 70, but to all the world, you're still a rock star. Yes. Right? Like you can match that very well. 
And it's not until, you know, you kind of hit, I don't, I don't want to say rock bottom, but you reach a threshold where you say something is wrong. I need to do something. Yeah. But as it relates to concussions, head injuries, you know, the diagnosis and um, the imaging that we have doesn't give us um, great fidelity to describe what's going on until you get functional imaging. It's very difficult. So what we hear repeatedly is, yeah, I went to my doctor, I got an MRI. They said my MRI was normal. So it must just be me. And so that I think is, that's the truth. I never, I I had 11 surgeries, five documented concussions. One, I was out for 12 minutes. I never had an MRI conclusively say anything. Not that I tore a ligament, broke a bone, like, had a concussion, nothing. There was never anything conclusively that they could take from that MRI and say, here's what you have. Nothing. Yeah. Unfortunately. Well, that's, yeah. That's a struggle. And I think we're bumping up against the limitations of uh, medical technology. And so ultimately one of the first paradigms in medicine, we always say you have to listen to your patient. And even if the MRI might look good, MRIs are designed to give you very good data and information about anatomy. So if you're trying to pick up a, a tumor or a bleed or a uh, space-occupying lesion, you know, it's, it's the perfect tool for that job. But if you're trying to pick up function, it's not really going to give you that information. And that's why the EEG, even though it's a very old instrument, it's been around for a long time, it's taken over a time domain, it's giving you very rich information about function, not so much about anatomy. So it's kind of like if you're trying to screw a nail into a wall, you want a Phillips screwdriver, you don't want a hammer, right? And so... The EEG is the perfect tool for what we're trying to do is look at brain function, design a protocol around it. Um, but kind of circling back to this experience of, you know, I'm going to all the experts and they're telling me that um, it's just going to take time and, you know, suck it up and internal fortitude, whatever it is. Um, even though we launched into this uh, being dedicated to trying to get FDA approvals for uh, concussions, post-traumatic stress, these conditions we see that um, we're seeing very promising data on. The market has kind of told us this area of human performance is one we should explore. And whether it's uh, the military brass or elite athletes, um, repeatedly we're hearing, my reaction times are better than they were. My marksmanship scores are better. Um, you know, along a number of different dimensions, heart rate variability in particular, we've seen some very intriguing changes and, and so that's something we're now embarking on and trying to explore. It's very interesting. It's a different community, I think, than the traditional medical field where we're about saving lives and stamping out disease and uh, they're very strict criteria for when we do X, Y, and Z. Um, but for a lot of the, whether it's an executive, a elite athlete, or a top-tier operator, um, if they're perceiving and experiencing that their skills are diminishing over time. And, uh, you know, these, these best-in-class medical studies are telling them, well, we can't pick up anything grossly abnormal. That seems to be a space where people really gravitate towards the technology. It's the performance-enhancing technology. That's right. Yes. That's right. So, yeah, where when you go through a job, and I experienced this in my NFL career, I'm sure veterans and executives and other people experience the same thing. It's like you get better at your job, you're more efficient at your job, but you're not as capable at your job through like my physical skills continue to diminish. I, I noticed my processor was diminishing in, in the way that it was firing and 
my ability to have handle the week was diminishing. And I bet other people, just civilians, executives, people that are really kind of pushing their own envelope, they feel the same way. It's like, I used to be able to achieve so much more. They're still achieving because their autopilot is running at a pretty high rate. And they're really efficient at doing the job that they've done for a long time. But as far as extending their own boundaries, like you kind of run out of that. Yeah. Well, and you know, I think there's there's something to this in the sense that there's a stigma that to some degree needs to be overcome. And what we're doing is we're not necessarily interested in labeling somebody with, oh, you're dysthymic, you're depressed, you're anxious. We kind of we kind of bypass that and say, hey, this area of your brain is not functioning well. And if we tune that up, you might be you might feel a little bit better. And I think that's important, particularly to um, you know, a, a high performing individual who doesn't, they don't want to hear the label, right? They just, of they course. just want to be feeling better. And we talked about, you know, my friend being able to read the pages of the book and digest that information. Um, that's an important part. You know, if you are getting frustrated, gosh, I'm reading the same page 20 times and it's not that's sinking thinking. in or, you know, you know, I've got this party my wife wants me to go to, but I'm just paralyzed with anxiety. I don't feel like I can do it. All these things, if, if you take away the label and you just say, you know, we're going to help you to perform better, who doesn't want that, right? And so uh, I, th- I think that this whole space of behavioral health and mental health, if um, there is any kind of stigma, and uh, I think that's a whole separate discussion we should have where that stigma needs to go away. But in the best interest of the communities, if it's, if it's simply a matter of getting this organ to function a little bit better, even if it's 10%, 5%, and we're seeing results that are more promising than that. But if we can just create a small delta or margin where people can incrementally improve their function, that's very meaningful. And that can manifest in a variety of different ways, whether it's being a better um, father or wife to my family, whether it's being a better executive in the boardroom, whether it's being a better operator on target, you know, all these things... um, are a byproduct of, um, you know, being able to function better cognitively. So that's ultimately, I think, the goal. That's right. When you talk about kind of removing the stigmas, one of the the big stigmas out there, of course, is PTSD, right? And it's, and I know there are certain people who say PTSD is not real. I have no idea because I haven't been put in those types of situations. How much of a function is PTSD to the brain not firing optimally? Yeah. So it's, this is a great academic discussion, and uh, we could have a room full of, I think, VA doctors and DOD doctors talking about it, and there's going to be a lot of different opinions. But I do think the emerging science lends itself towards um, there, there are changes in brain circuitry that happen over time when you're in a very kinetic environment like that. And um, this is going to be a long, circuitous road. I think it will apply to... Uh, a broad band of your audience, whether they're um, NFL players, retirees, uh, just interested uh, people in the civilian community or, or veterans. But um, there's several studies. One of the joys of being in this space is it's so rapidly evolving. Um, we're learning things every week. And it's just a trajectory and velocity with which this information is coming at us. There's so many unknowns about the brain. Yeah, there are. But we're starting to find some of these answers. And I think that's an important message to get out there. Sometimes it feels like there's no answers. 
but we're starting to illuminate. Uh, there's starting to be a scientific knowledge base that we didn't have even a couple of years ago. And so if I can just uh, share a couple of uh, data points, you know, a lot of your audience will be familiar um, with uh, two proteins that are cogn causing cognitive decline. They're well known. Uh, beta amyloid and tau have been associated with the development of Alzheimer's disease. And that's true in animal models and human models. We know this. Um, but most of the academic thinking was the issue was there's an overproduction of these proteins. And the weight of the evidence is now telling us it's not an overproduction issue. It's a clearance issue. And so it's getting them out. That's right. Gotcha. Okay. And there is a great, there's some, an evolution of studies and I'm going to reference a, a couple of scientists who I think should be credited with this out of Washington university, um, where they, they ran a study, um, and what they found, so there's something called the glial lymphatic system, or for short, they call it the glymphatic system. And in our body, our musculoskeletal system, there's a lymphatic system that clears uh, detritus and byproducts of metabolism from the muscles. The glymphatic system uh, flushes away and sanitizes the brain during deep sleep, stage three, stage four sleep. And so these tau proteins and beta amyloid, it turns out um, during deep sleep, that's when uh, these neuronal tissues can wash away those, those metabolic byproducts. And in the study um, by uh, David Holtzman and, and Brendan Lucy, they sleep-deprived an individual for just one night, and then they took a lumbar puncture and measured the cerebral spinal fluid, and they found huge increases in the amount of tau and beta amyloid, right? And so there's this overproduction, and they weren't clearing it properly. And so... That's not enough to make a causal association, but it's, it's, I think, a very important discovery. And it describes, I think, the importance of this glial lymphatic system. And part of the reason I think that's going to be relevant to your audience, there's, in parallel to this, some great studies being done uh, at the VA in Boston. There's a woman by the name of Anne McKee. You may recognize her name because she did a study on NFL players. Where yes. out of 100 NFL, NFL autopsies, they found 110 of those had CTE. And the characteristic feature of CTE was, number one, destruction of astroglial cells. The substrate of this glial lymphatic system seems to be destroyed by repeated head injuries. And as a byproduct of that, there was increased deposition of these tau proteins. And so... We now sort of have this answer. It may be a structural issue. This clearance mechanism seems to be disrupted and may be compounded by sleep deprivation if certain areas of the brain are injured, right? And there's a separate, so all these data points kind of align, like the arc of truth follows the science, right? And there's a researcher out of Uniform Services University, Daniel Pearl, who's studying veterans and found the junctional areas of the brain, the areas where Gray, gray matter turns into white matter, that's where the destruction of the overpressurization blast injuries occur. But it's specifically the glial cells that are damaged. And so we're seeing these commonalities, like we can call it something different. You can call it cumulotraumatic encephalopathy if you want. You can call it traumatic brain injury if you want. Maybe you call it post-traumatic stress if you want. But I believe the commonality at the end of the day is that we're seeing disruptions in the fundamental anatomy and the clearance mechanism uh, in people's brain function. And sleep deprivation alone might do that. 
right? But this study, I think, that happened out of Washington University is telling us very clearly um, if you are not getting into stage three, stage four sleep, if you're not getting those restorative properties of oversleep, and this was just one night, you can imagine cumulatively over time, if you're getting years of poor sleep, what's that doing to, to your health, right? And so we kind of circle back to uh, the importance of foundational sleep. And, you know, I want to be as unbiased as possible, um, whether it's us, whether it's uh, somebody else. Uh, I hope everyone comes away from this conversation recognizing I need to protect my sleep. I need to have good sleep hygiene. Um, and uh, at, at a rudimentary level, what that means is uh, don't have caffeinated beverages or stimulants, nicotine, um, afternoon, early evening. You okay. just got to stop. The other thing is, um, you know, making sure you get proper blue light in the morning and avoid blue light in the evening. That's not as well known, but... Blue light is from our ancestors thousands of years ago. The first cue to establish your circadian rhythm was natural sunlight hitting your eyes. And when specifically blue light spectrum hits your retina, it sets off a cascade of events where melatonin will spike roughly 12 hours later. And when that melatonin spike occurs late in the evening, between 8 and 10 o'clock usually, um, you have to listen to your body and your natural biology. That's when it's time to shut down. That's when it's time to shut down. When you do that, you very quickly go into stage three, stage four sleep. If you miss that window, what happens if you bypass that 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. melatonin spike? Many times you may, be, you may end up being very alert and have trouble sleeping. And so if you miss that first, if, if you miss that window, you may be up until midnight, one or two in the morning saying, why can't I sleep? You know, and it's just, that's your natural biology. And so we sort of have to listen to our biology. And in fact, this, we've known about circadian rhythm for quite a while, but actually Nobel Prizes were awarded in 2017 for this discovery and for uh, this acknowledgement that blue light is fundamental to establishing our circadian rhythm. So the first message I would get out there is get blue light in the morning, whether it's just having a bowl of cereal outside or taking the dog for Just sunlight, a and it comes park. through the clouds. That's right. If it, you're driving in your car, roll the windows down because it doesn't come through the glass, correct? That's right. So glass filters out uniquely blue spectrum light, and so... I was thinking for myself when I first heard about this, and I, I suspect this is the experience of a lot of office workers. I go from my bedroom into my garage, into my car, and I'm immediately behind glass. And then I drive 30 minutes to work. I walk about 10 feet into my office, and I'm behind glass again. And so if glass is diminishing the amount of blue light exposure that I'm getting, I'm never really setting my circadian rhythm. So it's not a wonder that I have trouble sleeping at night. And the converse of that is if it is a cue for you to wake up, Getting blue light exposure late at night works against you. And what is unique to our generation, besides having uh, artificial light indoors, is we now have a lot of screen time with tablets and phones. And those, until very recently, were emitting a lot of blue light. Whether it's TV, you know, uh, an iPad, whatever course, it is, yeah. you know, when you're getting blue light, that is sabotaging your sleep. Do LED lights emit blue light? They do. They and do, which is funny because you do it like we have a home renovation that we're sitting in right now. I yeah. mean, it's done, but well, now, part of the California laws mandate that you have LED lights instead of the old school halogen lights. Right. And there, so people are starting to engineer ways around this. I think the knowledge is getting around. So, for example, many phones either have apps or they automatically remove blue light after like 5 p.m. Yes. You can set your phone to do that. Uh, these natural lights, so blue light 
diminishes in its strength um, exponentially by distance. And so you may be far enough away from these these lights where okay. it's not going to completely undermine your effort. Um, but just to give you an example, it's, it's hard to trick Mother Nature. So when you go outside on a sunny day, you're getting 70 to 100,000 lumen of blue light just by being outside. If you get a blue light monitor, so many, many office workers will get blue light like in Seattle or Alaska, and they'll put it in front of their screen. Uh, if you're standing right against that blue light, you're going to be very lucky if you get 5,000 lumen of blue light. Okay. So it's, it's orders of magnitude difference. Nevertheless, um, I don't know that our general population is completely in tune with the importance of uh, honoring our biology and getting blue light in the morning and avoiding blue light at night. And, you know, when we talk about some of these blockbuster pharmaceuticals like uh, Ambien or Sonata, um, we're a country that's pretty sleep deprived. And, and so that's, that's one of the things where uh, I think just a little bit of knowledge can go a long way and we can endorse for ourselves good behaviors and good habits that are going to help us to function better and to perform better. I want to circle back to this because you talked about the fundamental destruction of the glial lymphatic system, the glymphatic system, as you were talking about. When you have TBI, when you have concussions, when you're a combat veteran or you're a, you know, a contact, contact sport guy or gal, do you do fundamental damage that can't be repairable? Is, is it irreparable damage that you're doing to the makeup of the body? Or is there something we can do to kind of get that restored, to optimize? I mean, what can we do about it? Great question. And so I don't think we know the answer yet about whether it can be um, reversed or repaired. Um, you know, certainly there aren't any kind of, uh, at least that I'm aware of, neuroregenerative technologies where that kind of damage uh, can occur. But... Um, I, I think that the things we're talking about in terms of uh, optimizing the function that you have and engaging what we call neuroplasticity, uh, all those good habits are, I think, really important and fundamental to uh, the mission that we're, we're both walking on. And whether it's protecting your sleep, whether it's proper nutrition, um, you know, maintaining good cognitive function and activities, uh, those are all important things for us to do. The, le the degree of damage, I don't think we have the tools in our arsenal yet to really predict how people are going to do long-term. I think there's a lot of research being done uh, to identify that. Um, there are some interesting biomarkers being developed. Right now, one that is really interesting, um, supposed to be a proxy for uh, the amount of neuroplasticity we have is BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. And it's, it's a chemical that binds to platelets, so you can measure it in serum. But I think we're still a ways away from being able to utilize that as a predictive tool to see how much damage was done and, and what can be fixed. I think what we ought to do, and hopefully what the leaders in our communities are investing in, is finding ways to prevent those things from happening. I think... Um, People in those positions are taking the responsibility seriously. I'm always encouraged when uh, the NFL, they're investing in new helmet designs. Uh, they're, they're changing the rules. Changing the rules. Yeah. I think these are all good things. I know from an operational standpoint, you know, it's frustrating if games are paused, looking at, you know, is that uh, a head-to-head -head hit or, or whatnot? And, you know, as a guy who watches uh, those sports, yeah, I mean, it, it can be inter interruptive, but 
the message I think is is important, and that quality of life and those people who are on the field are more important. And anything we can do to prevent those injuries from occurring, and to increase awareness of how we can address those most effectively based on the state of the art sciences, our duty and our obligation. And so uh, I think all those wheels are in motion and uh, hopefully it's just a matter of time before we get better answers. So, uh, so to answer your question, I don't, I don't think we have the tools in the bag right now to predict. Um, but uh, for those who are concerned, uh, there's uh, I, I think a wealth of information out there that we can engage and integrate into our lifestyles to um, maximize our function and uh, keep what's working going. Kind of give me a checklist, if you would, if people who have either stepped away from football, stepped away from combat, have issues or concerns about their brains, where would you start for them? I think there are a lot of um, tools that can be implemented to, to baseline people and to measure their progression over time, serial studies that we can do to assess function. And, you know, the impact test is out there. Uh, I think one of the worst kept secrets is if you sandbag your baseline test and if you want to stay on the field, you know, you might be able to get a similar score even after you get dinged up. Um, So the questionnaires, while I think they have their place in in the tool bag, uh, they have limitations as well. Uh, I do think getting an EEG, getting these baseline studies is important. I think more and more... Uh, at the NCAA level and at the professional level, people are starting to get those studies. And, and for us, it's very helpful. Uh, if for no other reason, if you're getting, we check everything from the neck down, right? We check range of motion. We do blood tests. Doing do heart size now. Exactly. And from the neck up, we're doing almost nothing, right? And you can MRI the brain. As we talked about, there's a limited utility. It's like a single snapshot in time. It's like a still image. But these EEGs, if you're taking them over... 30 minutes or an hour, and, and we now have the ability to use less time to capture a good image, but you're getting a pretty good sense of somebody's function over time because it's taken over time domain. And if we do those annually, you can have these honest conversations because I think people want to know. And if five years after you started your career, all of a sudden we see a big drop and that may coincide with uh, a sentinel event that happened, whether it was a big hit on the field or... Uh, whether it's uh, a life event that may happen, say a loved one passed away. Um, you know, there may be changes in the electrical signal where we can at least have that honest conversation. Why are we not doing these early on? Is it cost prohibitive? No. These, the EEG? Yeah, these are I not. I mean, even for like a high school student going in, getting his routine yearly physical. Yeah. I mean, is it cost prohibitive for that? It's really not. These are very inexpensive studies to get. You know, if MRIs are thousands of dollars, EEGs run hundreds of dollars. And uh, they're quick, simple studies to get. They're non-invasive. It's not a similar issue. Like in an MRI, you have to go into a tube. You know, this is something where you just sit in a chair for 20 to 30 minutes and you can capture an image. Um, So it's not cost prohibitive. I think it's it's really just a function of um, the market hasn't gravitated towards it yet. But I think that's probably coming. Um, it's not, it's gotta be next. Yeah. And this, this isn't really uh, a space that we've delved into per se. So, um, but yeah, I think it should be part of a standard physical exam, particularly in people who may be going into harm's way and are at risk of sustaining a head injury. 
I think it should be a baseline study that everyone is getting. So we, we at least know pre-injury what's happening. And then longitudinally over time, being able to monitor that and see when there has been a change. Um, yeah, I, I think because there's this whole field that we call prodromal medicine where rather than waiting for somebody to fall off a cliff and have a disorder or disease, um, can we measure these things over time and do outreach where we see, hey, we see this change. It may mean nothing, but it may mean something. Can you tell us a little bit about how you're feeling about XYZ? And whether that's um, you know annual blood tests where we're monitoring cholesterol levels or uh, whether it's uh, an EEG where somebody may have had a change, uh, whether that's a physiologic change or um, just kind of a life event that happens or if their sleep has just fallen off a cliff. You know, all these things... Um, you know, life happens. And to now have an instrument or a tool where, as a physician, I can go to my patient and say, hey, I'm seeing this change. It's a very powerful evolution, I think, in our technological capability that hasn't been fully utilized yet. And so I'm hoping what you're describing will be the way the market moves into because, um, you know, there's so much potential there to... uh, do good things and really advocate for our patients. How much of an individual's brain resilience and ability to rebound after a concussion or whatever they go through, how much of that is baked into your DNA? I think a lot. And we don't have definitive answers on kind of what you can do behaviorally versus, you know, what you're born with. Um, I'm inclined to believe in, in terms of this uh, neuroplasticity and emotional resilience component I think a lot of it is baked into the DNA. I think that tends to be something you're probably born with. But there's there's emerging research uh, showing that certain types of dietary and nutritional supplements can help a bit. Um, and, and so I'm not uh, savvy enough in the nutritional world to have a really strong opinion, but uh, a lot of my colleagues in that space are uh, endorsing uh, kind of a ketogenic diet for head injuries. Um, I've seen this, some discussion about uh, the Gundry diet. And, um, you know, anything that can help is is certainly important to be knowledgeable about. Um, it's just not my space. When you're talking about brain waves, and we'll get it wrapped up here pretty quick, when we're talking about brain waves like over a lifespan, how much of a drop-off do you see from decade to decade in, a, in just an average person's life? Yeah. And then the ability to kind of bring that back up to more optimal levels. Right. So we do see degradation over time. And this is measured more, I would say, over decades than years. But certainly in our 40s, 50s, and 60s, we're starting to see um, slowing of of waveforms just as an aggregate overall. And so that, I think, especially from an executive perspective, is where the optimization piece kind of comes in is people want – uh, to ramp up their clock speed and to feel uh, like they can process information just a little bit quicker. And so that's an area uh, that I think is really of interest to the integrative medicine and functional medicine folks who are studying longevity. Uh, but it's fairly predictable. We can see these changes and slowing over time. And I think the open question that more study is warranted is um, how much are these head injuries contributing to that? doesn't matter if it happens in your teenage years versus your 30s. Um, I do think earlier on in the trajectory, 
tends to have a bigger downrange impact. Um, but those are the folks who may have during those formative years, during those during formative teenage, years. yeah, yeah. And what's what's a bit exciting is we also see those are those tend to be some of our best responders uh, to treatment. And so um, if we can capture those earlier on and um, not have too much of an extended delay uh, before we get them into treatment, we may see more promising results. And and so, yeah, there's a lot of study that's needed across a lot of different dimensions. But um, your overarching point of uh, just as a result of our natural aging process, uh, does slowing occur, uh, that's that's definitely been our observation. All right, two more. Do you think a lot of the future science is going to be directed towards the brain specifically at flushing out those two proteins, the beta amyloid and the tau protein? Is that going to be where a lot of it's directed? If you've got this glial lymphatic system kind of breakdown, you're going to find medicine that's perhaps going to be able to grab onto it and flush it out? So I hope so. And, and that's, you know, these are these are things that are being discovered in real time as we speak. And so I would say within the last two or three years, uh, that's when these kind of findings occurred. In large part, um, the pharmaceuticals, I don't want to say have given up, but there's not as much research in the pipeline in terms of pharmaceutical interventions related to Alzheimer's or cognitive dementia. Most of the studies that have been done and the pharmaceutical you know, clinical trials that have occurred have not been real promising. Um, so I think some new innovations will be spun up towards that end. Um, I'm not aware of uh, any innovations imminently that are going to repair that glial lymphatic system. I think the important data point right now is just that we're starting to identify root cause and mechanisms that may be causing uh, the downrange injuries and um, symptoms that people are experiencing. And that, to me, is reason for hope. And so once you find out this information, you can then be very strategic about how you're going to intervene and at what point in the cascade would it make sense to uh, try to develop, whether it's a new pharmaceutical or a medical device or whatever it is, um, that could help towards this endeavor. But is that, you know, these these glial cells, are they're so tiny it's it's difficult um to think of the right way to approach it so uh, but you know the good news is there's an army of people way smarter than me who are going to be looking at this and uh, trying to innovate ways to help uh, these vulnerable communities all right lastly other than guys like me former football players military veterans who should be coming to the brain treatment center who have you guys had great impact on that you've seen either anecdotally or through the actual brave brainwave function increasing? So it's a great question, and it's, it's a really broad spectrum of, of individuals. And so uh, I would say folks who have experienced a concussion, a head injury, uh, a lot of um, executives or folks who uh, feel like cognitively they're um, diminishing a bit in their capability, uh, you know, those are folks that we've been able to help. And so... Uh, I would say is uh, a band of uh, people that have been coming into the Brain Treatment Center. That's that's a group that uh, we tend to be able to touch pretty well. Dr. Eric Wan, thank you so much for the time. Yes, sir. It's All my right. pleasure. Yeah, I really appreciate it. 
Hey guys, I really hope you enjoyed listening to Dr. Eric Wan. I know I did. I hope I answered some of the questions that you may have. I thought it was just fascinating information that he gave us. And kind of to wrap this thing up, when we got done recording with Doc, he got talking about the Brain Treatment Center and its place in restoring neurocognitive function. And of course, he didn't He didn't want to sound like it was a sales pitch, and I respect the crap out of him for that. He, he even had to sneak it in that he was a naval flight surgeon. He's got a Harvard background. He's the chief medical officer for an aerospace company. I think we can all kind of connect the dots there. I love that about him, but frankly, and if you're struggling and don't feel like yourself, I personally want you to at least start looking around and seeing what you can do. And, and here's, I have to put this out there. I am not taking any money from wave neuroscience or brain treatment center. It's not a sponsorship deal in any sort. I paid full price for their services. And I really just believe in what they were able to do for me. So in the post-show, post-show conversation, he pinned it down to this and I'm paraphrasing here. Fundamentally, what they are doing is really tapping into the body's natural healing process. So Mother Nature engineered us to be these healing organisms, and the brain's no different. Sometimes it just gets stuck, whether through blast trauma or getting blindsided by a safety or an emotional trauma from a loved one dying or chemical trauma of using drugs for an extended period of time. The MERT treatment, the magnetic e-resonance therapy treatment, the Brain Treatment Center, is able to remind the body of this state that it already wants to return to, and it really helps it allow it to get there. So one common thread that's unifying all these doctors, and I know you heard Dr. Wan talk a lot about it. He didn't want to keep driving it down and driving it down, but the, the really the unifying thread amongst all these doctors and scientists is the necessity for deep restorative sleep. So as he was talking, it's if we can get that deep restorative sleep over a matter of weeks and months, We potentially have the ability to reverse some of the damage that we've done in terms of the brain. When we can get into stage three and four for a really good amount of time for consecutive weeks, we may give ourselves the chance to flush out those beta amyloids and the tau proteins that he was talking about that are showing up post-mortem in people diagnosed with CTE. Sleep, it seriously cannot be ignored or dismissed. Yeah, I'll get it later. No, you got to get your sleep now. We have to listen to these experts and start building our health around what I'm coming to recognize as the fundamental element, which is the restorative sleep. So if you're willing to start your self-care journey with sleeping more or getting to bed on time or being gentler with yourself in the morning. I know I am. I'm, I'm trying my best to get eight hours a day now after listening to some of these experts. This sleep is not a joke. It, it may not matter what else you're doing, eating, exercise. You may be spinning your wheels. So start tracking your sleep, whether it's with a Fitbit. I use a Fitbit or an Aura Ring or a Whoop, whatever it is. The important thing to know is that if we sleep longer and better and more consistently, We can repair ourselves from the lives that we lived and we can continue to hopefully keep living a really healthy, successful life. Guys, thanks so much for listening. Until next time, here's to your health. This podcast represents the opinions of Nick Hardwick and his guests to the show. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for informational purposes only. And because each person is so unique, please consult your healthcare professional 
for any medical questions.